I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we embezzle billions of words and sell them back to you for the low, low price of our opinion is going to be there too. And if you want to shop elsewhere, that's fine with us. But at this Ponzi scheme, we're doing it our way. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they got that. <laughs> I'm sure that was a very effective up top warning. We're reading a book. We're telling you what's in the book with a saucy side of our opinions. And if you don't want our opinions, read the book yourself. And Ashley, do we have any news? Oh my God, do we have news? We are fleeing the country because this scheme has gone belly up. <laughs> I respect the tenacity. I respect the marriage to the bit. We're coming to London and Dublin, which you know, but what you don't know is we are adding more shows. So we are adding April 6th in Dublin and I believe April 10th in London. I am so excited to be there twice as much as we were before. I really hope that if you hear this, you buy tickets because... I really hope that if you want tickets, you get them this time because last time they sold out Lickety Split Baby. So if you're listening right now and you live in the United Kingdom or Ireland, highly recommend you get to the show notes right now and click the links. We can't wait to see you there. And thank you so much to all the worms. I'm calling them the island countries because they're both countries that look like islands to me. Thank you to all of the worms out there who bought tickets the first time so quickly because we were able to sell out so fast. We were able to add more shows so that everyone could come and I'm just so grateful and I can't wait to meet you guys. I'm so excited to get over there. We're also going to be in Seattle, Portland, Dallas, and Austin and New York coming up. Those shows are getting pretty close to selling out too, so get on it. And Ashley, yeah, if you were a celebrity and you were writing a memoir, what would last week's chapter title be called? It would be called The Winds Are Changing. I think I'm like delayed in my Saturn return. People are like, oh, you have a big change in your cellular molecular bullshit when you turn 29. I don't actually know what age it is. I feel like in the last year, a lot of stuff that I like has been shifting. What do you like now that you've never liked before? It's what I don't like that I used to like. What don't you like? Me? No. I feel like the coffee shops that I think are good are different. I literally don't know if the coffee is different or if my taste buds are different. There are like beverages that I used to like a lot that I don't really like anymore. I'm really into that fizzy yerba mate drink that I got at the gas station. I don't even know what I like anymore and I feel like I need to revisit every restaurant in town to readjust or maybe I have a slight cold. I cannot wait for you to come to terms with the fact that you may love mayonnaise. I don't think I do. No, you don't like the idea of it, but you do like the living of it. I don't know if it's true. Why not give it a chance? Who gets hurt? Me. Anyway, Claire, if you were writing a book about your life, what would you title the chapter about last week? Am I allowed to say proud of myself? Yeah. (laughs) Trying my best. Is that a fair response? Yeah. I feel like I've been kind of down and out the past couple weeks, but I have been fighting for my freaking life in the trenches, man. I have been staying active. I have been calling upon friends to be social and keep myself alive. I have been in a kind of bad mood, but in a way that I've been very self-aware and trying to not let it affect the people around me. And if I slip up, I feel like I'll apologize. (laughs) Can you confirm? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I've been having a really hard time, but I have been trying very hard 
to not wallow and do the best I can. And I feel like I really genuinely am doing the best I can for myself right now. And I am saying that that is enough. Like I literally don't know what else there would be to do. So I'm trying to be like grace bestowed upon me. Good. I can't help if I'm sad. You have to give yourself grace. I don't know. I'm doing my best. I still feel like shit. It's very cold outside. That's not my fault. No, it's not. It's Ginger Duggar's God's fault. (laughs) Hers is an angry God. Yeah. So you know what? I'm just saying things sometimes aren't fun and not enjoyable, but I'm, I'm marching on. Good. I don't know. I don't feel guilty about it. Good. And that's all you can do. Ain't that the truth? (laughs) Anyway, should we get into this week's book? You guys, this week we are covering what I would actually call our first place award for loosest use of the term celebrity. Listen, it's not going to become a habit, so don't ask. <laughs> I would say, who do you think she dethrones? Danielle Bernstein? As the least famous person we've ever covered. Yeah. The loosest grasp upon a celebrity title. Maybe Leander Medine Cohen. I think she's only famous in like a seven block radius. Whereas Danielle Bernstein has actually screwed over enough designers that she's famous in the tri-state area. She definitely has the fewest Instagram followers of anybody. I looked up her Instagram. She has 1,800 followers. This week's memoirist. (laughs) It's private. I will say she is the person most famous for saying she wants her privacy. And in that, I respect her. Give it up. (laughs) Give it up. (laughs) Stephanie Madoff Mack. Who is she? The daughter-in-law of Bertie Madoff. Famously, the biggest Ponzi scheme in New York City for decades. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, which I'll be honest, I'm not very financially literate, so I didn't really know who the biggest scammers were before Anna Delvey. And Bernie Madoff just stole a lot of money from everybody and said he was investing it, but he was lying. I have to say it was a genuinely enjoyable book to read because a star novelist could not have written a protagonist with such an insane sense of self such a petulance, such a childishness, such a narcissism. I think the one thing about being a celebrity is you know that you have to play the humble game. This girl is too deluded to know that, and it was enjoyable to read. This one is a real who asked situation. When we read a Chriselle Staus, a Christine Quinn, we can be like, who asked? But someone did. This book You're just like, what? Where did this come from? If you told me this was just a printed out Google Doc, I'd go, of course. (laughs) This feels like an email that you get that's like, if you don't send this to seven people, you'll get bad luck forever. But we can trace back who started the email. But anyway, I'm so excited. The End of Normal, A Wife's Anguish, A Widow's New Life. So for those of you who don't know, she was married to Mark Madoff, the son of Bernie Madoff, who took his own life two years after his father was arrested. For stealing $65 billion. The book starts on the last day of normal. That's chapter one. And basically this surrounds the day that they find out that their entire world is a lie and that everything Bernie Madoff had presumably earned for himself was just truly an illegal fraud case. And she uses it to kind of illustrate what their life was like before the break. Our last day of normal fell in the winter of 2008. It was December and we were in Greenwich, Connecticut, where we spent every Tuesday night with Mark's two children from his first marriage. And she goes on to be like, it seems like I should be able to remember what we talked about and what we did. But of course, it was just a normal day at the time. So my brain didn't remember it. And then very quickly, she goes into what this book is really about, which is stealing $65 billion from people is bad, but your husband's bitch ex-wife is worse. (laughs) And mostly, this is a weird book where she just tells on herself for being the most evil stepmother of all time. 
She just hates that he had a life before her and she can't reconcile that at no point during his life did he ever say like, do you know what? Let's just start fresh, you and me. And everything that I've lived up until this point doesn't matter anymore. She treats his children from his first marriage like dogs. Like I cannot explain it to you. The way that she is like... Jesus Christ, you have to see them every weekend. She acts like the way that he wanted to see them was just this nice chivalrous thing he did, like alimony. Not only does she treat it like, oh, I can't believe he has to go see them every single week. She also can't believe that the ex-wife has a say in any of it. She says it's so kind of him that he still wants to spend time with those two kids, even though their marriage fell apart. And there's still an evil ex-wife lurking in the corner being like, I want a say over what my children do. <laughs> Mark had a chronic case of divorce daddy syndrome, missing his son and daughter so much that he often overcompensated by trying to anticipate every possible need and kowtow to every whim. When we were all together, any restaurant we ate at or movie we saw was the children's choice to make. I don't know. That feels to me normal. Like you can't take kids to a movie that they don't want to see. You can't be like, I don't care that you're seven. We're seeing Triangle of Sadness. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like, oh, you're a divorced dad situation. It's like, this is what it is like to have kids situation. They get to pick the activities if you're doing activities with them. If it's your weekend in the city with your dad, you do the activities the kids want to do. That's just what it is. She admits that being a second wife graded on her at times and my intense insecurities about my own place in the pecking order of Mark's close-knit family. She says that Mark's mother, Ruth Madoff, kind of preyed on this a little bit and would have little jabs all the time. And she says, even though I had come three years after his bitter divorce, it rankled me that Kate and Daniel's mother remained, by extension, so deeply entwined in our lives. I mean, that just is what families are. I guess I don't understand why she thought that the children's mother would be cut. I know people who weren't even married who their parents still talk to their exes, and it's fucking weird. Yeah, so around this time, Mark had been telling her for a few months that he was worried about his dad and he thought that he had some terminal illness. And he's like, you don't understand. He just sits in his desk all day and stares at the ceiling. And what you need to understand about Bernie Madoff was he was considered a financial genius maven. He was president of the NASDAQ. At one point, he was being eyed to be the chairman of the Fed, which is... I think it's like the CFO of America. Literally the person who runs this economy. And this is a man who just straight up stole $65 billion. Can I tell you what? Yeah. So did America. <laughs> He would have been perfect, cut from the same cloth. Anyway, so then she gets into talking about Mark and his position at the company. She says, Mark was proud to have earned his spot as a senior manager on the 19th floor of the market-making segment of the firm. He never had any doubts that this is where he belonged, and he had never known anything else. So this is another thing. Throughout the book, she's very obsessed with the way Mark earned his place within this company. I don't know that you can earn your place within a company that your dad founded and was like illegally running, but... She's very like, this was Mark's destiny. This is all he ever knew. And it's like, yeah, it's all he ever knew. But I think that if someone was like, oh, you can earn seven figures by just like kind of chilling with your family all week, I'd be like, down. That's where I'm meant to be. My <laughs> destiny. <laughs> so something I need you guys to know about this book is she wrote it. And the way that she makes this okay in her brain is she is claiming that she's telling her deceased husband's story. So that's how she rationalizes it. So the whole point of this story is to let you know that he was, in fact, innocent and he had no idea what his own dad was doing. The reason she mentions it was the 19th floor is because Bernie's office was on the 17th floor and his department was the 17th floor, whereas Mark and his brother Andy were in charge of offices on the 19th floor. And she's like, they were very different floors. Wherever you are right now, imagine someone is two floors below you doing crime. Listen and see if you can hear it. Probably too far away. 
<laughs> you can't know about crime upstairs. Downstairs even. So she's just going through the days leading up to the big confession. And she talks about how odd Bernie had been acting and then how odd Ruth was acting as well. They were at their daughter's birthday party, Audrey. My parents and Bernie sat down with the rest of the adults to watch the kids and enjoy themselves. But Ruth hurtled herself into the middle of the toddler mayhem. It wasn't unusual for her to be the life of the party, but seeking that spotlight at Kitty Playdate was extreme even by Ruth's standards. The rest of us watched in dismay as she jumped into the big pit full of foam balls and began cavorting with two-year-olds. She sounds like a fun grandma, to be honest with you. So this gets to my second favorite thing about this book, which is that most of our memoirists are talking about themselves and their own families, right? So there's a bit of a contradiction in your heart where you don't want to rat your family out, but you do want to tell your story. She is an in-law of famous villains. And so she feels very confident in being like, my in-laws fucking blow. And she's like, my mother-in-law? Yeah, she was jumping the foam pit like a freak. We looked on with dismay. (laughs) This is also a fun book because it's just the lifestyle of an extremely wealthy woman. At this point, people thought Bernie was worth billions of dollars and she was married to his son, who in addition to inheriting billions of dollars, was himself making millions of dollars working at his finance company. On the 19th floor. (laughs) A different floor than the 17th floor, may we remind you. And so it's also the fun story of a woman who really likes about herself that she's so humble, but also is deluded in a way that's hard to explain. Remember that Paris Hilton thing where she's like, I love Hanes t-shirts. I'm really humble. I like that they're a single-use shirt. (laughs) She has that where she's like, I'm wearing a shirt from The Gap. I'm very humble. I like that you can throw them out after everywhere. I mean, she doesn't say that specifically, but that's the vibe. Anyway, so this is about the day that her husband found out. And she's at the apartment. The baby's nursery was still unfinished. And my good friend Susan, a brilliant interior designer, was planning on meeting me at our apartment with a contractor after I dropped Mark off at work. We wanted to sketch out where the baby furniture would go and design custom shelving that would be able to carry a little boy through childhood from teddy bears to football trophies. Honorable. I would not just assume your son is going to win a trophy. I was like, football trophies in Soho? (laughs) Okay. So Mark comes home and is like, by the way, we just found out that the whole thing is a fraud. What had happened is they had left their job together. Bernie and his two sons, Mark and Andy. He's like, we need to leave. Let's go to my apartment. So they walked to his apartment. At the apartment, Mark and Andy found their mother sitting on the living room couch, her face completely devoid of expression. It's all one big lie, he told his sons. There were no investments, no brilliant returns, just somewhere around $50 billion in debt that he couldn't pay. Bernie betrayed no emotion or remorse calmly delivering his bombshell with cool demeanor of an anchorman reading a wire report on the evening news. So Bernie had been planning to deliver that year's bonuses and then go turn himself in. But as soon as Andy and Mark found out about what he had been doing for the last however many years, they called a lawyer immediately and then decided the next day to turn him in. Yeah, so he had like $140 million of cash sitting around. So he was going to pay out bonuses to everybody he liked in the company just to get that money out of his hands. I guess he thought it was like a show of good behavior to be like, I'm taking care of the few people I didn't ruin. Yeah. (laughs) Because he was going to pass out the bonuses in November, which is quite unorthodox. Usually they gave out bonuses in January or February. Yeah. And so he was going to do that and then the next week turn himself in. And the boys are like, well, you can't hand out $140 million with us knowing that it's fake money because now we're implicated. So they immediately turn him in. They were turning their father in. It was a decision that should have made them heroes, but would instead for the foreseeable future cost them everything. Their families, their livelihoods, and their own good reputations. Exposing their father would bring them under scrutiny as well, even though neither Mark nor Andy had worked for the fraudulent fund. The whole thing is a fraudulent fund. It's so funny because she's like, no, you don't understand. Most of it was a fraudulent fund, but what my husband ran was good. But what your husband ran was like money given to him from that fraudulent fund off of the reputation that was fraudulently built off that name. So 
Yeah. So that's the complicated thing about this story is the point of this book, aside from talking about how like humble and cool she is, is about how innocent Mark was and how the reports of him being in on it are what drove him to end his life. But the problem is she like can't get over the harsh lines of innocent versus guilty. And I'm not saying he was guilty and he should have been thrown under the bus, but I'm saying that like at no point do they reconcile that maybe we should sell our homes in good faith to help repay the people who we've ruined. She's an Erica Jane where she's like, I didn't know that I was being gifted stolen goods, but they're mine now. So what are you going to take them back? You can't. They were a gift. (laughs) (laughs) So now we go back in time and we get to hear about how they met. He knew by the third date. I knew on the fourth. They had been set up on a blind date by what she claims was just a random woman in the gym who came up to her one day and who herself had been set up on a blind date and wanted to pay it forward. This to me sounds like a madame or a madam. What do you mean you just walked up to a random yeah. woman at the gym and you were like, hey, I have a hot friend. Would you go out with him? By the time my 27th birthday rolled around, I was still single and I was beginning to lose patience with fate. What was taking so long? So this woman comes up to her at the gym and says, I have an eligible friend. He's 37 years old named Mark Madoff, divorced with two kids and probably one of the wealthiest men in New York City. I want everyone right now to reread that. Sorry, a 37-year-old guy named Mark Madoff, divorced with two kids and one of the wealthiest men in New York City. What detail did your mind stop on? 37 years old? Ew, (laughs) she said. But she decided to take the date because her mom and her stepfather worried that I was on my way to becoming the spinster daughter they would have to help support forever while she flitted from one artsy job to the next, always ridiculously overqualified and even more ridiculously underpaid. I will say, I don't know at what point she seems qualified for anything, but... So her dad is a very successful lawyer and got her a job at George Magazine. She was just an intern at JFK Jr.'s Magazine, and then she rose to like photo editor, which I don't think is a real job. The magazine shut down when JFK died. And then she got a job as an assistant for the designer Narcisco Rodriguez. Where she's like, I would do things like go and get his lattes and pick up stuff for him at CVS. Like she just seems like she was a paid friend. So the thing where she's just like, I was flitting from one artsy job to the next. Like, what do you do? You were waiting to find a husband and you had landed a pretty hefty fish. She's obsessed with fishing. Well, he's obsessed with fishing. So she like makes it her personality so that they could get married. Their first date was downtown on the Lower East Side. Then a slowly gentrifying neighborhood in what was once the dangerous maze of high rise projects. Mark later admitted that he had picked a place downtown far from both of our Upper East Side apartments as a bit of a test. He wanted someone with a sense of adventure, not some high maintenance Park Avenue princess. Little did he know that my office was actually a few blocks from the restaurant. I considered myself a downtown girl through and through. I mean, you literally didn't live downtown. You can't just be like, oh, I went downtown for work and so I was a downtown girl. That's not what that is. So the next day she's at the gym. She goes to the gym every day at 6 a.m., which is her favorite thing about herself. And some guy comes up and hits on her and she is like, get away from me. I don't know you. And then it turns out is, of course, Mark, who she had already gone on a date with. He would never confess that he'd intentionally come to check me out with his buddy, but I'd been going to the gym at 6 a.m. religiously for over five years, and it was deserted enough at that hour for me to recognize the regulars, and I knew he wasn't one of them. I guess I passed the how does she look sweaty and half asleep with no makeup test because he didn't stand me up for their second date. I'm sorry. If I went out with a man one time, and then the next week he showed up at the gym when he knew I would be there with a friend to see what I looked like, I'd be like, oh, you're crazy and evil and scary. This feels a lot more like a courting situation than it does a dating situation. 
Their first two or three dates were at restaurants and they didn't even kiss until their fourth date, which was at a gala. So it really does feel like there was no physical intimacy at all until it was like, yeah, we're going to get married. And yeah, she shows up to the gala with him where it turns out he's the president of the New York Stock Exchange or something and he's giving a speech. And then they kiss and then she's like, I basically moved in after that. So he really was like, well, you're easy enough. Can you dress up? All right, move in. (laughs) You're my partner now. Mark's wealth wasn't something we discussed and he never flaunted it. My own family was comfortable, but by no means in the same league as some of my classmates at my private Nightingale Bamford School on East 92nd Street. Okay, so I love this about her. She's comfortable. As we go through this book, just hold on to that. Hold on to the comfort that she grew up in. She grew up in Manhattan and went to private school. We'll elaborate later. (laughs) By the time I met Mark, my wild days were long over and I had no desire to relive them. Size does matter. And before you let your mind go somewhere too saucy, I'm going to tell you about something even saucier, the base weekender bag. If organization gets you going, you are going to love the hyper-functional, chic design. You can fit everything you need in this bag. You've got all the pockets, all of the space to organize your belongings for a weekend or longer. Effortlessly fit it all in so you don't have to settle for anything less. Base was created by the actress Shay Mitchell to make sleek and affordable bags, luggage, and accessories designed to help you travel effortlessly while still looking fashionable. Base has thought of everything you could ever want in a piece of luggage, 360-degree gliding wheels, a cushioned handle, built-in weight indicators for the overpacker in all of us, washable bags for your dirty clothes, and all the interior pockets you need to keep organized. The Base Weekender bag, which Claire and I both have, even has a bottom pocket that you can use for shoes hair, heat tools, anything you don't want mixed in with the rest of your belongings. It's so nice to have all of the separation I could ever want. I have never been more organized in my entire life. The luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors. Every piece is made to look better with miles, so you don't have to worry about it in cargo or overhead. And base has over 30,000 five-star reviews. Whether you're packing for a quick trip or looking to breeze through the security line, Base has your personal items covered. Right now, Base is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash worm. Go to basetravel.com slash worm for 15% off your first purchase. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash worm. So she meets his parents and is slowly like brought into his world. And she's always upset at the way it's going because it'll be very like, hey, My parents are having lunch next door. Let's go see them. And she's like, meet your parents. That's a big deal. And I'm not prepared. But he was always testing her with these things. And she wanted to marry him so bad that no matter how unhappy she was, she wanted to be easy to get along. And she says this about herself. And I don't think she ever realizes what it is that she's saying. Both Bernie and Ruth infuriate me now. But honestly, when I looked at the two of them back then, I hope to have the same kind of marriage someday with their son. She talks about meeting Andy and how he's a little bit less outgoing. So he's kind of hard to get to know. And overall, the number one thing that she had to get over was the ex-wife, which she honestly never did. To this day, she hasn't. There's like this big Madoff family weekend every summer, and she had not yet met his children. And so he is going to this Madoff family weekend in Montauk, and she is devastated that eight months into their relationship, she is not being invited on this big family weekend. Yet, the ex-wife and the two children, who she, I believe, considers (laughs) ex-children, are invited. And then they go out to dinner with some family friends that were invited to the weekend a couple days later. And they're like talking about how fun the weekend was. And she takes it so personally that they're just rubbing in how she wasn't invited to this weekend. I'm sorry. I guess at this point in my life, if I'm like on a track for marriage and we've been dating for eight months, I'd be like, all right, we're like kind of in it at this point. 
But especially when I was younger and especially if I was with someone who had been married before and told me outright that he did not want to get remarried, eight months in is not when you're like, if I'm not in your family, I'm nothing to you. So ultimately, she does meet the children. We'd been together 11 months before Mark finally introduced me to his kids. Kate and Daniel had come to the city on one of their weekends with their dad and Mark decided it was time for them to meet his friend. So she's thrilled about this. We all get along. Now we're a real couple. The illusion was quickly shattered when Mark asked me to come along on a weekend visit with the kids in Greenwich, only to insist that I sleep in the maid's room. This is how the child psychologist said we should do it, Mark insisted. When Kate's cousins and little friends came over to play, they assumed I was the nanny. So she is so mad, but I don't know. It seems like, okay, you can't sleep in the same room, but there's a reason. It's not like he's making these rules up. They have somebody that they're helping them get through this divorce for the benefit of the kids. What is one fucking night in a guest room? At one point, she's like, people were so fucking rude about me, even though his marriage had long been over by the time we got together. He had been divorced for three years. That is not that long in the grand scheme of divorces. Becoming a part of Mark's time with his kids came with the unwanted bonus of a new social director in my life, Mark's ex. Susan called incessantly during his visitation time, wanting to speak with the kids or Mark, peppering him with unsolicited advice about what activities he might do with Kate and Daniel, what to feed them, where to take them shopping, and so on. I wondered why he put up with it. Because she's their mother. She's their mother, he would say defensively. It was easier to indulge her than to cross her. I wasn't quite as willing to be bulldozed, and her meddling soon ignited our first big fight. I'm sorry, but he seems like a daddy just shows up on weekends, and as she said herself, whenever they're together, he like indulges and spoils them. It seems like he might need an idea or two about where to take them shopping or what to do with them. The way that she's like, can you believe that she was constantly calling her kids their mom? Yeah, <laughs> I kind of can. So the big fight they have is that it's Labor Day weekend. Mark, Stephanie, and the two kids all go to Montauk to stay with Bernie and Ruth. The kids have a friend from school who lives nearby. And so the wife calls and is like, can you take the kids for a play date with their friend? And Stephanie is like, why would they need to go on a play date with their friend they go to school with their friend. This is the weekend. And Mark is like, I thought it would be fun for the kids to be with their friends. And Stephanie says, they see each other in Greenwich all the time. Why did he have to be such a wimp when it came to his ex-wife? Didn't he see that this wasn't about a play date? This was about control. And he needed to stand up for himself and assert his right to enjoy his visitation time free from their mother's interference, which was so constant that it felt like borderline stalking. Okay. She's literally suggesting that the kids just live normal lives with both parents. Anyway, at one point he says to her again, I don't see myself getting married again. But she's like, do you know what? I just loved being with him. We took genuine delight in each other's company and save for the Labor Day quarrel, we had never fought about anything else. I was determined to be the perfect girlfriend, a sweet, understanding, good sport partner who needed nothing more. So she's like, we never fought because I hid all of my feelings. <laughs> she's like, I went along with anything he said. And can you believe we had a pretty easygoing relationship? So he actually just like randomly pops on her that he's never going to get married. And she has a full meltdown at the restaurant. And then she decides that she had to just go with her gut. I didn't want to break up. I couldn't imagine life without him, without loving him. I was going to stay. I'd be able to change his mind. I'd convinced myself. Oof. She's obsessed with being like, I loved him and it had nothing to do with the money. And I'm like, okay, so this man who you couldn't stand his children, you couldn't stand his ex. You were faking a lot of parts of your personality to get along with him. And he told you he'd never marry you. And you were like, that's fine. I'll stick it out. And I'm going to win this thing. So she doesn't stick it out. Right on the brink of her 30th birthday, she has a full-blown meltdown where she's like, I can't believe I'm giving up my childbearing years for you. Playing house with no promise. With that, I picked up the lamp off the table and threw it on the floor, leaving a dent in the polished wood. I stomped out the door. And then he goes, oh, I was going to propose at your birthday party. My birthday party turned into an engagement party. I felt like an idiot, a very happy one. 
This is exactly when I talk about how I'm like, I would never want to be surprised by a proposal. Yes. The idea that they were that on the different pages that she genuinely thought they would never get married. And meanwhile, he was planning the proposal. Like, how could you guys never talk about your future together? How could you be that out of sync with your partner? The fact that you would smash a lamp because you thought that you were that out of sync. And then it turns out you were on this. I don't know. They never talked. So now it's wedding planning time. I'd always wanted a destination wedding in St. Bart's where my parents had a vacation home. It was my top pick. The comfortable family that sent her to private school also has a vacation home in St. Bart's. But then she was like, I don't know if my friends would go all the way to St. Bart's, so we're just going to do Nantucket. What? So then they have this Thanksgiving-themed wedding in October in Nantucket, and she claims that eight years later, people still tell me it was the best wedding ever. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't believe you. The one thing that ruined it is that after they got engaged, Bernie wanted her to sign a prenup. And she's like, what? None of the other ex-wives had to sign a prenup? And he's like, yeah, that's the whole problem. I mean, she, yeah, she's crazy. She goes, what does he think I am? Some kind of gold digger? Nice. He had rendered the most beautiful moment of my life so far into something cold and calculating. Feeling spiteful, I flat out refused to sign. Can I be honest? I wonder if it's because we've come a long way culturally around prenups. But to me, a prenup is something that you only wouldn't sign if you were definitely a gold digger. That's how I feel. I'm always like, if you're not a gold digger, then who cares? I've always felt like if you think you're going to stay together forever anyway, then who cares what happens if you don't? Yeah. If you don't need an exit plan, then fill the exit plan with rocks and sparklers. Who cares? If you think you're going to be married forever, like put it all on the fucking table. Say, if we break up. I leave without a fucking shred of clothing on my back. (laughs) It's just so funny to be like, I don't think we would ever break up. But if we did break up, it would be so amicable and beautiful. And it's like, well, if you don't think you'll ever break up, then clearly you don't know what's coming. I was still upset. I didn't care about diamonds or dollars. This was about trust and simple respect. Qualities that I thought needed to be obvious for any marriage to succeed, regardless of either party's respective bank accounts. It's not just about his respective bank account. It's about his dad's $65 billion. I guess I just don't think it's that crazy. And of course, she like puts up the biggest fight in the world and ends up paying it anyway. I thought the Madoffs were the perfect family. Everyone was smart. Everyone seemed happy. Everyone seemed to get along well enough. Madoffs moved through the world at cruising speed, never needing to shift gears or second guess their direction, confident that the surface beneath them would remain solid and smooth. I mean, for a while, it did. So here's where she gets into how she knows that Mark couldn't have been aware of any of the fraud. She talks about how even though they worked side by side, he had his own thing. By their 40s, Andy was restless, but Mark still loved working side by side with his brother after more than 20 years, and he enjoyed his work without becoming obsessive about it. Mark couldn't have been any further from the ruthless Gordon Gecko stereotype of the successful young broker. When he walked through our apartment door around 6 each evening, he was done. He wasn't glued to his cell phone like his father or answering client emails at dinner. Oddly enough, given his family name and the golden reputation it had then, Mark was never a person our friends would go to for stock tips. I think he might not have been good at his job. Of course he didn't know what was going on with his dad's office. He was never even there. Of course he wasn't doing crime. He wasn't doing anything. (laughs) And she's like, he's so good at keeping boundaries. He never socialized. He rarely entertained clients, didn't go out for drinks. He didn't work that hard because he never had to earn anything. It's like so funny that she's like, randomly, he was so successful on his own without having to do any of the things that other successful people have to do. I wonder what the key to his success was. Everyone I know who works in finance is like grinding and grinding and grinding. And Mark was just, I don't know, hanging out. He had a different competitive edge and it was his ability to take a step back and not care so much. (laughs) She's like, he wasn't frugal, but he had never had lavish taste. He got his hair cut at the local barber. I mean, you guys lived on the Upper East Side. Who knows what that means? She goes, we always flew coach when we went on vacation unless we were going with his parents and we just hitched right on their jet. (laughs) (laughs) And he bought cool but inexpensive bohemian chic jewelry for me. What does that mean? I don't know. 
Later, she's talking about clothes, and she's like, Bernie had really expensive taste, and he would buy a lot of designer clothes, but Mark really preferred Brooks Brothers and Patagonia. Oh, my God. And then she tells the craziest story about getting a tattoo that's supposed to be... It's supposed to be about how spontaneous and cool she is, but instead... It's like the worst story I've ever heard. It's like a made-up story from someone who's only ever kind of heard of tattoos where she's talking about going to a tattoo parlor and she's going to get the outline of a star spontaneously. So crazy. But she walks in and the tattoo artist is like, I don't think I can give you a tattoo tonight. And she's like, just give me one. It's easy. And he's like, well, I've had a few drinks, but up to you. And she's like, oh my God, I'll come back in the morning. And it's like, first of all, literally what tattoo parlor did you go to? That's not something I've ever heard of in my life, that there's a guy who is sitting there with the tattoo parlor open. Being like, I'm too drunk to tattoo. They must have had the worst energy. And he was like, no way am I becoming part of your life story, miss. Yeah. So then she goes the next day alone. And she's like, there was a tattoo artist there. He was covered head to toe in tattoos. And it's like, no fucking way. A tattoo artist with tattoos. And he was bald, but not like rich guy bald, like a guy who just has too much testosterone and something to prove. But he was like scary guy bald. There is something so wrong with her. Then she talks about how I was cool and he was vicariously cool. I debuted my ink at his daughter's bat mitzvah and we both relished in the oh my God looks of the horror on the faces of all the proper Connecticut wives there. I wonder if they were horrified by a tattoo or if they were horrified by the fact that you tried to upstage his daughter at her bar mitzvah. Like you're like the horrible new stepwife. She's 30 years old and she's showing up at this bat mitzvah being like, well, I got a tattoo. You memorized the Torah. Well, guess what? I'm a wild, sexy child. And your dad thinks I'm more interesting than you. (laughs) So at this point, she becomes a Madoff and she realizes she doesn't know who she is anymore. And that's probably because she like quit her job and gave up everything and her entire sense of self to become a Madoff. And then she's like, well, who else am I? And then we go through this fun little game of her trying to figure out who she wants to be. And at first she thinks she wants to be a pastry chef. Well, she fully goes to pastry school and cavorts with other aspiring pastry chefs. And they don't like her because she's just there for fun and thinking maybe I will or maybe I won't be a pastry chef. Whereas from what I understand from aspiring chef TikTok, a lot of people go into extreme debt trying to go to pastry school and then it turns out beginning baker jobs don't pay well and so people really fuck themselves over. So these are probably very stressed individuals who are watching this housewife be like, I don't know, I accidentally mixed up the flour and the salt. How funny that this cake is a rock. (laughs) She realizes midway through pastry school that she does not want to be a pastry chef and she also would have to get an internship in order to fully get her certificate and she's like I'm not going to get another internship but then they decide they need a new place to live and she's like well with looking for apartments what am I going to work to Nuh-uh. but then she finds her real passion seeing the way that Ruth and Bernie adored Kate and Daniel as well as Andy's two daughters I realized that I would never feel like we were a real family or like I was a full-fledged member of the family without children of our own so at first Mark is like I don't want kids and she's just like well what if I promise they won't bug you at all And then all of her friends have kids. And then she's like, we need to have one. It's so weird how she's like obsessed with him being old. He's really not that old. No, 10 years doesn't feel like a huge gap. I've dated someone who's 10 years older than me before. And I was younger and I was like, oh, that was maybe kind of weird. But like 27, 37 doesn't feel insane. And then she gains a ton of weight during the pregnancy and everyone's really mean to her about it, especially her doctor. My doctor shook his head. You know, Stephanie, you fucked yourself. You still have five months to go. Bernie made nasty remarks about the size of her rear end. They have the baby. They're having fun. Everyone's sending gifts. She's like, it's so weird when you're related to rich people because people I had never met in my life were just sending me Hermes and Tiffany's and Cartier gifts for the babies. And I don't even know who sent them. Just every day things were getting sent up to me. So now she has a baby and that's like a really big situation for her. She gets pregnant again with another baby and no one really cares that much about baby number two. She like waits till the big Montauk family weekend and everyone's like, oh, okay, go to town, dude. 
She keeps just like enumerating all the fights she has with the ex-wife. And I have to say for someone who is literally only telling their side of the story in this book, I still don't know what her side of the story is. The things that she's upset about are like the mom called and was like, don't give them iPods for Hanukkah. And then she ended up letting them get iPods for Hanukkah. And then the mom, because she knows the kids are getting iPods for Hanukkah, gets some iPod accessories. And she's like always trying to one up me. I don't know. That just feels like a cohesive gift. Also, it's like they're her kids. I do kind of understand not wanting to be the least favorite when you're the mom. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm sure he was just coming in, spending money, taking their favorite restaurant and bouncing. That's why she was like, stop just spoiling them. I mean, if there's one thing we've learned from these memoirs, it's that people hate their moms for literally no reason, especially when they have divorced parents and their dad showed up sometimes and their mom was always there for them. Like there's nothing worse than being a mom who's always there for you. The other thing is it's funny because Stephanie will be like, Mark hated it when I called his kids spoiled, but they were so spoiled and I was always trying to tell him about it. I hated his spoiled children who their bitch mother said stop spoiling. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Susan. And then the other weird rich person thing is when it came time for Daniel's bar mitzvah, the behind the scenes drama was bad enough to send Mark and me into couples therapy. So basically the mom wants to have a rehearsal dinner for the bar mitzvah, which I've never in my life heard of. Have you, Ashley? I've literally, I don't even know what that is. What do you mean a rehearsal dinner for the bar mitzvah? That's not a thing. They're 13. And Stephanie is like, well, why should I have to go? They're not my family. Yeah, Stephanie is fucking livid that at the rehearsal dinner for her stepchild's bar mitzvah, the other family members will be there too. And she's like, what? So we're all just supposed to hang out all the time? Like we're all just a family? And it's like, yeah, you literally are just a family. I felt uncomfortable around Susan and her family and I didn't particularly want to subject my parents and brother to an awkward situation either. It just feels like everyone was invited but she feels gracious. Why couldn't we all just be together at the bar mitzvah? If Susan wanted a rehearsal dinner with her family, she was welcome to just do it on her own, obviously. It's ridiculous, I complained to Mark. Why doesn't anyone accept that you're divorced? This is their child's party that they share. This isn't Susan's 40th birthday and she's like, why isn't my stepwife's dad coming? This is their shared child's birthday and Stephanie is like, why do I have to go to my bitch stepdaughter's party? They agreed on a compromise. I would suck it up this time, but I would not do it again for his daughter's botman. So yeah, she'll do it for the sons, but not for the daughters. Jesus Christ. Let's talk about love languages. I don't know if you know yours, if you've taken the test, whether it's physical touch, quality time. Dipsy has invented a whole new love language with sexy stories for whatever mood you're in. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. Wherever your mind is wandering, Dipsy will take you the rest of the way there. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. I love checking in to see what Dipsy has added. It's so much fun to get a whole new story right in the palm of my hand. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness stories, and sexy stories you can read, which I am a huge fan of. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, relax, unwind, or heat things up with a partner. For listeners of this show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash worm. dipsystories.com slash worm. So then she has the baby, and they're so happy, and Bernie and Ruth are in love, and everybody is obsessed. And then she talks about how her parents and Bernie and Ruth become close. Why? Because my parents had a home not far from the Madoff Speech House in Montauk. So how many homes is this? So in case you're wondering, 
to grow up comfortable is to have an apartment in Manhattan, a house in St. Bart's, and then a house in Montauk. Yeah. And send your kid to private school. And I guess get them an internship at George. And then she was just living with them for free. My own bearings, though, were strong as could be. Finally, I had a perfect word to fill in that nagging personal blank. I am, I told myself, a mother. Nothing could possibly have felt more right. So then she jumps back into post-arrest. Mark never saw his father again after he turned him in. The amount of money Bernie had meticulously and mercilessly stolen over the course of a decade or more was nothing short of the staggering $65 billion taken from thousands of trusting friends, relatives, investors, organizations, and charitable funds. Hundreds of innocent employees who had nothing to do with the elite and imaginary private fund Bernie managed nonetheless lost their livelihood and their professional reputations. Their resumes rendered toxic because they had worked for the biggest con man in history. So his father is arrested on December 11th. Our lives stopped belonging to us from the moment Mark turned their father in. Suddenly we weren't Mark and Steph anymore. We weren't individuals or a couple or a young family. We were a crisis to manage. So the papers are just going after them, talking about who they are, what they owe, what they've done to people. No one can separate that Mark wasn't aware. Optically, we were told we should not be seen shopping. And optically, it was not a good idea to eat out. Optically, going to the theater or a concert was out of the question. So she's like, how we were perceived took over how we were. Here's the thing is they should have just gone into hiding. They should have just left the city. But then she's like, you don't understand. I had to have everything I bought delivered. And I'm like, okay, that feels not so bad. The thing is her parents had other homes. So she has a two-year-old and she's pregnant. Go somewhere else. Yeah, they're like, we couldn't escape the paparazzi and we couldn't even just walk around and eat out. And it's like, okay, then go to Greenwich. They have a house in Nantucket. Go to your parents' house in St. Bart. Just get out of the city then if you hate it so much. And also don't be like, I couldn't even shop in person. <laughs> Everything I got had to be delivered through the back door and brought up by a doorman. I'm sorry. That's tough. The thing is, I do feel bad. And the thing that's so interesting about this book is it is there's like a kernel of sympathy that she could grasp at. And instead, she makes herself the most unsympathetic person in the world. And she's telling her own story. That's what I don't understand. <laughs> we all came in on her side. If she was going to be like, listen, I saw that family like my life was taken from me. My husband passed away. These are sad things. Instead, she's like, and the worst thing of all was I had to go to a rehearsal dinner for a bat mitzvah. And I'm like, how? I don't even understand what you're mad about right now. That you were invited and your family was included. That children existed before you. Our apartment had turned into a sort of bunker. Mark and I cooked or ordered in and spent idle hours debating whether the old guys, Bernie's four top lieutenants, had known all along about the Ponzi scheme. I mean, we've all bunkered. I hated Bernie thoroughly and deeply from the instant Mark told me what he had done. There was no gradual coming to terms with it, no feeling conflicted or torn. The emotion hit instantly a full-force missile. I'd had genuine affection for my father-in-law. Now I cringed to think how endearing I'd found it that a supposedly self-made billionaire favored hamburgers over caviar and went to the movies every evening with a woman he had begun dating half a century ago. So that's like the interesting thing is obviously what he did was horrible. It's evil. He stole bad guy. But she has no sense that her husband relationship to his own father might be different than her relationship to him. She's like, why didn't everyone just turn on him the way I did? He's an evil man. So I stopped speaking to him. Why didn't everyone just stop speaking to him? Yeah. So Ruth... Her mother-in-law has a really hard time severing ties. So you later find out that Ruth and Bernie met when they were 13 and 16 years old. So she's like, my husband, who I've been dating since I was 13 years old and married to for 50 fucking years, it turns out stole a fuck ton of money. She wouldn't just stop talking to him. She had a really hard time with it. And she's sitting here being like, but why? Why though? 
that my husband might somehow have been involved in Bernie's criminal operation never once crossed my mind. He and Andy ran a completely separate business, and I have vivid memories of the two or three times in all our years together that Mark ever came home late at the end of a working day. Each time he recounted having had the same blow up with his father, a rare event to begin with. The last one had been the summer before Bernie's arrest when family members had their first inklings that something wasn't right. I love that she's like, I know that he wasn't working with his dad. He wasn't working at all. (laughs) He never came home late. I just cannot believe that she's like, he was a successful financier who never once worked overtime, never once had client dinners. She also says, so the few fights that they did have is it was understood that the two brothers would take over the company when their dad moved on, retired, whatever. And he refused to explain what he was doing. And they would be like, you have to tell us what your company is. And he'd be like, no. And no offense, but it should be pretty obvious. He just bought and sold stocks. It is pretty basic buy low, sell high. Because I guess the thing is he wasn't doing that. I know, but (laughs) so this whole book, the aim is to one, be like, I'm a perfect woman who everyone should feel sorry to. And two, my husband was innocent. I don't know. How innocent can you be if you're second in command in a company and nobody will tell you how it works and you're like, I don't know. I guess he's just too much of a genius. You know what I mean? I was saying it's very similar to the way that when I was little, I thought my dad was the tallest man in the world. When I was six, I was like, he is so tall. And that's fine because I was a baby and I didn't know. But now I'm an adult and I know that 5'10 is not actually the tallest man in the world. (laughs) It's close though. It's in spitting distance, but (laughs) it doesn't take the cake. I do think at some point, if you're 40 years old and working for a father who will not tell you how the business works, even though you're supposed to take over, at some point, you have to be a bit suspicious. Yeah. So the fact that he had no suspicions, and whenever he is suspicious that his dad is acting weird, he thinks it's a medical thing. He's always like, my dad is acting weird, so he must have a diagnosis. He won't ever ask, my dad's acting weird, could he be a criminal? Which, again, I would never assume that my dad is a criminal, but also he's not because my dad actually does explain to me what he does all the time and I can't hear a word of it. (laughs) Oh, my God. My dad, oh, God. He used to, like, scream at me if I ate a grape in the grocery store. He, like, is not a criminal. (laughs) He gets, like, very upset about, like, Thomas, I think, was torrenting movies. And my dad was like, no! (laughs) Anyway. Okay, so he could have figured it out. He just never did. I never doubted Mark innocence for a single second he was a hero this is when I texted you and I said do you think he knew because that felt like a little doth protest too muchy I don't think he knew but I also agree with you that he didn't know because he chose to act in ignorance but to be like he was a hero at the beginning when she goes he should have been treated like a hero because he turned in his dad no if he had lived for that one week with that knowledge he would have gone to jail The only person he saved was himself. His dad was about to turn himself in. When his dad came clean, it's because he's like, we're going to give out these bonuses and then I'm going to tell the feds what's up. And they were like, okay, well, now we're implicated and I don't want to be implicated. So they did turn their dad in. What I mean is like, even if it wasn't to save their own asses. You're not a hero for stopping billion dollar fraud. Yeah, it's not heroic. They didn't go into a burning building and save anybody. Right. Mark was too engulfed in his own pain to feel any of that pride himself. I mean, she really takes no time to be like, not only was his job not real, everything he knew, the father that preferred hamburgers over caviar did not exist. Yeah, he had been raised by a man who was a liar. Everything that he believed in was a lie. And then it's just a bunch more pages about how sad it was that she couldn't shop easily. How sad it was that they couldn't set the record straight. She was like, why can't we just talk to the press? If there's one thing I've learned, it's that when you mow down the door to be like, let me tell you my side of the story before a crisis has finished crising, you're not going to get it out right. Also, I'm sorry. Here she is post-crisis, and I will not say she did a good job. 
So now begins relationship with Ruth. Ruth, of course, is shell-shocked. Around New Year's, Ruth left a short, pathetic message on our voicemail, just checking in, wanting you guys to know we missed and loved you. Three weeks had passed since her shattered sons had fled the penthouse that fateful morning, and only now did she wonder how they might be doing. Do you think Ruth might have been engulfed by her own lawyer situation as well? I mean, Ruth is sitting there, her husband of 50 years. The only person she had lived with since she left home at 18 is a convicted criminal who will die in jail. I mean, he did die in jail. And more than that, their response is the lawyers have given us strict instructions to have no contact with you at this time. However, I do feel it's important for you to know that we love you very much. And there's never a moment that goes by when we do not think of you. I'm sure Ruth had a hard time contacting because everybody's like, you cannot contact your kids without implicating them. I'm sure she was like very paralyzed by the fear of what to do next legally. And then she did something fucked up. So all of Ruth and Bernie's assets are being seized and they get a package that has watches and jewels being like, we wanted you to have our heirlooms. And so they turn them into the feds and they're like, how dare they try to implicate us again? And it's like, I think that they're rich idiots who, despite being under careful investigation, still think they're like a little bit bulletproof. So she has her second child. She tells the Madoffs via lawyers in April, she allows Ruth to come visit. And she is kind of getting off on the fact that Ruth is completely alone. Mark won't talk to her. Andy won't talk to her. And she's like, I'm going to be the conduit to this woman. I'm going to give her grace. I'm going to give her a little missives of we love and miss you. Here's what's going on with us. And she loves the power. It's so funny. She's like, let's just escape. Let's just go to Jackson Hole. Mark is like, well, my kids live in Connecticut, so I can't move there. And she's just like, oh, my God, you still have those fucking kids. (laughs) And she keeps being like, let's just move. Let's just go. So finally, she's like, can we just go to Nantucket then? So they go to the house they own on Nantucket. And she's like, well, finally, we can't be stressed here, right? It's just summertime here. And the day that Bernie is officially sentenced to 150 years, they all go out to dinner and their friends are like, congrats, buddy, you made it. We survived, I said, repeating it for good measure. We survived. I'm sorry, but to say to your husband and have no sense of the emotional turmoil that you might feel it when your dad, who you up till six weeks ago, you loved and worshipped and revered and worked for, is sentenced to 150 years in jail. You don't know how that might be fucking him up a little bit. That is crazy to be like, we made it. There is no winning this situation. She is so unsympathetic. It's like crazy what a narcissist she is. Bernie Madoff was gone for good. What I didn't realize was that Mark Madoff was too. You didn't think that this would impact your husband on an emotional level? She literally thinks, she's like, okay, Bernie's going to prison. We got through it. That's not it. So then she goes into what they were like, Bernie and Ruth for real. And she says Bernie just wasn't that deep and he wasn't that smart. And he just, someone can just lie, no problem. But she says Ruth is much more interesting. She goes, when I look back now, I can see how Ruth's constant little digs and comments used to feed my animosity towards Mark's ex-wife, Susan, as much as anything Susan herself did or said. That's not true. Ruth loved to build you up and then not so much knock you down as flick you aside. I I still don't know what Susan did that was so bad. Invite you and your parents to a rehearsal. I mean, a kooky event, to be sure, but very (laughs) normal seeming amongst the riches. And oh, what else did she do? She cared what her kids were eating for dinner. Yeah, she called in and suggested playdates. For nearly a year following Bernie's confession, however, I felt closer to Ruth than I ever had. I pitied her and was genuinely frightened for her. Her loyalty to Bernie was hard to stomach, but I was willing to give her the benefit of the doubt and view it as a form of denial that would wear off once she was faced with the reality of her husband being locked up for good. She also basically accuses Ruth of having an eating disorder. She's like, oh, Ruth loved to just not eat. Or if we had chicken, she would rifle through the garbage and pull out the chicken carcass and just suck on the bones. Yeah, she never had a carb, not even on vacation. She had two facelifts. 
She like really shits on the way she did her makeup, which was very 80s. And she's like, for my wedding, my friend who is a makeup artist did her makeup beautifully and naturally and subtle. And she wiped it off and did her own makeup. It's like, yeah, she's a 65-year-old woman. Let her look the way she looks. She even writes a statement to the media and says, many wonder if I can still love a man who did this. And I understand that. But this is the man, for better or for worse, whom I married 49 years ago. How does one discard 49 years of a lifetime? My connection to him has been forged through the years and I cannot abandon him. And Stephanie's like, shut up. (laughs) She's like, oh, what a fucking bad look. I can't believe you said that. If you were a victim of Bernie Madoff's schemes, I'd be like, fuck off, Ruth. But if you're the person reading that, I don't know. I do think it takes time to detangle 49 years of companionship, whether or not it's even love. Also, she was not benefiting from standing by him. Right. And that's why I kind of think it only would have helped her to distance herself. After he got sentenced, her name was obviously dragged through the mud and she was left with nothing. She tried in vain to hold on to $69 million in assets her lawyers claimed were unrelated to the fraud and ended up settling for $2.5 million, which immediately became the target of civil lawsuits. She was left with literally nothing. She couldn't get an apartment. Every real estate person in Manhattan sent messages around saying, do not rent to Ruth Madoff. Everything was taken from her. She was kicked out of her apartment like on camera. She had no friends left. Only two people would still speak to her. She had literally nothing left. And then to be like, and now renounce your husband. Like, guess even if I'm a victim of Bernie, I don't know what it would do for me for her to wipe her hands clean of it. I mean, if you were there for the highs, bitch, you better be there for the lows. In sickness and in health. For richer or for poorer. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's already a line for that. (laughs) For Mark and me, the backlash was still subtle but still hurtful. I found myself excluded from the bridal party of one of my old friends and passed over as a godmother by another. I mean, maybe they just didn't like you. People who had once bragged about knowing a Madoff son and daughter-in-law suddenly were embarrassed to acknowledge us. Yeah. I mean, I do think she really reveled in being with the Madoff family. And that's why this book is so funny because she shits on everybody and it's like, they were just there for the money. I was just there for what? I mean, if you're not going to be there for the money, then honestly give it to somebody who will be because a billion dollars is a lot of money to not appreciate at all. If all you're coming away with is some cheap, shabby, chic, bohemian jewelry, then go marry a povo. But like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, man. If you're going to lie about who you are and give up everything and move into his apartment and maybe not get married to be close to a billionaire, live it up. That's how I feel. So she ends up changing her name so that she can exist in society without having to carry around that dreaded Madoff name. She changes her name and her two children to Mac instead. And the thing is, later in the book, the brother makes a dig at how attention-seeking Stephanie is. The fact that she attached Madoff Mac to this book, the fact that there's like a New York Times article about her current styling business. I mean, the fact that there's a book at all. I would not have known this woman if she had not written a book about herself. I mean, she talks about how easy it was for her to be anonymous, even from the building where she lived. If she left without Mark, the paparazzi didn't care about her. I also don't understand why she didn't just go back to her maiden name. Why do they have to make up a whole new one from scratch? They came up with Mac because M is for Madoff and Ack, I guess, is the airport code for Nantucket. And they love Nantucket. And then she's like, damn, I wish I hadn't chosen it because I realized Mark Mac is a bad name. And then her son's name was Nick. And I was like, you're going to name your kid Nick Knack? <laughs> Nick, Nick Mac Paddywhack. Come on. Think about another person for a minute. No. And also she was like, damn, I wish I hadn't picked it so impulsively. I'm like, Picked it so impulsively. Just think about it twice. And then she talks about how she didn't really want to hang out with anybody because she, whenever she wanted to hang out with friends, she's always like, do they know what's going on with us? Yes. Yes. It was the biggest news story in the world. And then she's like, around this time, Andy and Mark started drifting apart. Andy's girlfriend, Catherine, invariably seemed to be a factor. He had introduced her to the rest of the family several months before Bernie's arrest to less than enthusiastic reviews. 
And then she's like, I wanted to see what she was like. So I went out to brunch with her and I actually really liked her. But Mark said something seems off. Soon enough, though, Mark's instincts were borne out and we were both under the impression that Catherine was trying a little too desperately to muscle her way into the Madoff family. She was angling for a driver. I don't know, man. You've got a billion dollars over there. Just get her a driver. And then she tells this story where you're supposed to really turn on the evils of Catherine and it makes no fucking sense. She sent Ruth flowers for Mother's Day and signed it from both of them. And when Ruth called Stephanie to thank her for the flowers, Stephanie was like, I didn't send you those flowers. Why would she lie? And then they called Catherine on it. She's like, oh, I didn't do that. Sorry. And then they call up the florist and prove that she lied. And they were like, you are evil, huh? And I was like, damn, man, if evil to you is sending flowers without checking in. I think she just thought that it was a nice thing to do and then got really scared by how mad you were and lied. I would lie too. And then Stephanie's like, I can't take all the liars in this family. Why does everybody act so crazy? I'm like, I don't know. Why are you so mad? Andy was deeply hurt and confused. He was in love. Why couldn't his brother just be happy for him? Great question, Andrew. Important traits about Andy. The only two things you ever really figure out about him is that Andy is very introverted and Andy was a cancer survivor. Also, after they lost their jobs at Madoff Securities, they had started a fly fishing reel company in an alternative energy enterprise. Andy had encouraged Mark to take a more active role developing a new product line they envisioned for the fly fishing business, but Mark quickly grew bored. It wasn't challenging and it wasn't filling his days. Mark, you're lucky to fucking have a job at all. The idea that you're like, this isn't challenging me. Dude, you just stole $65 billion. You can't leave your apartment. Maybe you take what you get. For a lot of us, learning a second language in high school or college wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. I took Spanish, and we could pretty much almost just trick our teacher into letting us watch music videos in Spanish, and I don't think I actually learned a word. Now, thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you're traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. I chose French because I've always wanted to learn French, and I started trying to learn French a few years ago, but I... Which honestly, I just sounded too cool speaking French. And I was like, I'm not ready for this yet. But I finally am. I think I'm finally prepared to be the best version of myself. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn new languages on the go. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes, and it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Go to babbel.com and use the promo code WORM. That's babbel.com code WORM. So Mark is struggling not talking to his dad. And he's also not been talking to his mom. And finally, he decides that if Ruth doesn't cut off Bernie, he can't talk to her either. Yeah. And Ruth decides to pitch her tent in the rubble. I was with my stepfather, mother, and brother on Marty's boat. That's her stepdad, which had a big open back you could fish off of. So for those of you keeping score at home, the comfortable upbringing is now an apartment in New York City, a house in St. Bart's, the house in Montauk, and a boat. (laughs) Anyway, so she spends the summer in Nantucket trying to learn to surf. She's really interested in reclaiming joy, but Mark is having a very hard time reclaiming joy. She had hoped that maybe here Mark would snap out of his funk and allow himself to enjoy life's little pleasures again, like digging for clams with your toes or grilling them for dinner. 
things had gotten funky. <laughs> what was on the top of her list? Learning to surf. Again, there's a lot of internal struggle about the way Ruth will not distance herself from Bernie. And Mark is someone who, when he's upset with something, he'll just like start clearing it out of his life. So he does a whole purge of his closet. And she's like, you can't get rid of everything you own. And he's like, watch me. And she has a lot of faith in what's going to happen because she goes, my determination was fueled by a deep faith in our justice system. Why does she have such faith in the justice system, you may ask? Her stepfather is a lawyer. The, step- the father who raised her is a lawyer. And when I was 12, he had commanded national headlines in a libel case against CBS and Walter Jacobson, a wildly popular Chicago news anchor who had falsely accused a tobacco firm of secretly strategizing to seduce minors into taking up smoking. So you heard that right. She believes in the justice system because her dad fought for big tobacco and won. And if that doesn't scream justice, I don't know what does. Oh, God. I will say her stepfather, Marty, was a huge help to her and her husband at this point because he was a big time lawyer. And any time Mark saw something about them in the papers, he would freak out, call Marty and have Marty basically say, what's new? What's the legalese? What's the deal? And Marty comes out seeming like a great guy in this. Marty comes out seeming like a great guy. He's very good at talking to Mark when Mark is freaking out. But she is very stressed about the way Mark takes in every single piece of news. Mark needed to learn how to turn off the noise. He loved technology and gadgets, and he couldn't stay away from the internet no matter how much we all pleaded. Don't cruise the web, don't read the New York Post and trash papers, and don't watch junk TV like CNBC, which is full of publicity seekers like Donald Trump. Poignant. Anyway, so what is she doing to distract herself? Once she stopped learning to surf, she thought about doing the New York City Marathon together. And her PR team was like, I really don't think that's a good idea because it was late in the game to sign up. So she needed to donate a certain amount of money in order to run. And they're like, you cannot be asking people to donate to your marathon right now. That's a pretty bad optic to be like the Madoffs are asking for money from friends and family. So she's like, fine, I'll just pay for it myself. Yeah. And Mark is like, I don't want to do that. And she's like, whatever, I'm doing it. With PR teams and legal teams and her husband being like, I'm not really interested in this marathon situation. She's like, I'm still going to do it. And she just like hurts herself immediately. She chose Lance Armstrong's Live Strong as her charity of choice. And I think that was also a scam, no? I think so. And then she's like, it just was so sad because Mark wouldn't let himself enjoy anything. He wouldn't even go out on the boat anymore. They had named his boat Little Bull after the $7 million super yacht named Bull that Bernie had bought in 2007. The yacht was an extravagance topped only by the private jet Bernie had bought the following year. Professional decorators had outfitted both, sparing no cost. That Mark was afraid of someone equating his Boston whaler with his father's ostentatious lifestyle was maddening. You're crazy. Just enjoy it, I urged Mark. I hated the way he punished himself for what his father had done, caving so readily to the popular sentiment that if you were a Madoff, you had no right to relax or have fun or feel anything but shame and remorse. Why can't these innocent people just enjoy the boat that they have docked at their third home? I do feel like you can't beat yourself up forever, but it had not yet been forever. Yeah, they were still in like the middle of everything. And also, I know he was blaming the optics, but I also do wonder if he was just depressed because his entire world had bottomed out. And I think that there is space to be like, listen, I didn't do anything wrong, but I was a part of something that ruined a lot of lives. Yeah. And maybe I just lay low for a little bit because he was still fishing every day from shore. He just had denied himself the simple pleasure of fishing from his boat. And I just think, yeah, okay, if you take one summer off of your boat, there's worse punishments. Okay, so I think that one of the reasons I believe couples should be together for a long time is to learn how you act in hard times before you get married. And the way that she acts in hard times is so crazy. I mean, she insists on spending the summer in Nantucket and learning to surf and training for a marathon. Now we're backing it up to mere days after Bernie is first arrested. 
she loves Dancing with the Stars, and so she had forced him to go to Dancing with the Stars on tour at an arena in New Jersey. She's like, it'll get your mind off of it. I love that they weren't allowed to do public outings or anything, but she was like, what, even Dancing with the Stars? <laughs> a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I thought she was on Dancing with the Stars. I was like, that is bad optics to be like, why am I a star? Because my father-in-law scammed zillions of people. But no, she just wanted to go watch the stars dance. She is so self-absorbed. I know Mark was frightened because he was seeing a more assertive, fiercer side of me that he had never seen until that summer. I was beginning to stand up for myself and express my frustration and anger more clearly instead of just whining or complaining. And this is because she had been seeing a therapist and I could feel myself shutting the put up with it and shut up girlfriend persona I've been stuck with for so long. I love that she was like, listen, I had faked who I was to have a billionaire husband, but I'm not going to fake who I am when he's having a hard time. I'm not going to fake who I am when it turns out those billions weren't real. Seemed like we were always in different places that summer, drifting apart and then briefly coming back together only to drift again. So she has a lot of frustration that she feels like Mark is acting like he's in it alone. And and I don't want to sound like I'm blaming her for his mental health decline, but I do feel like she is very upset that he's acting alone in this problem, but she's acting like he's alone in this problem. She's like, I don't see the problem. I mean, it is just bizarre to read a book where you are given every opportunity to paint yourself as the victim, and that is your goal of the book is to look like the victim and to be so unable to do it. It's weird to have this little self-awareness. So she starts doing this thing where she wants Bernie to suffer now that she's suffering. So she keeps trying to write him letters about how great their life is on the outside in order to like hurt him. And he's just like, hey, good to hear from you. It's not so bad in here. I'm making friends. I work out. I do. It's very Teresa Giudice of like, actually, we do yoga here and I'm reading books. And she's like mad that she's not hurting him more. Over the next 18 months, though, I was oddly compelled to sporadically keep up this bizarre correspondence. I'd become trapped in my own mind game. Even if Bernie couldn't see through me, I enjoyed my own cruelty. It's not cruel if he won't let it in as cruel. So more members of the fund go to jail. And people start coming after the family even more. People are asking if they're afraid that they're going to go to jail, if Mark is going to go to jail, if their home is going to get seized. Every couple weeks, it feels like they're in the clear for a little bit, but they never know when the next bomb is going to drop. And every bomb is just a rehashing of old news. And the biggest problem they face is nothing new is really happening. But every time, I guess, there's a slow news day, the Madoff gets a lot of clicks. So they keep rehashing and being like, the boys must have known. And every time it comes out, he like fights it tooth and nail. I understand that it must be hard, but also at some point you have to be like, okay, I just have to let it die down until it's fully over. Nothing new is happening. This doesn't mean anything. It's just public perception. But one day, another interview comes out and accuses him. He defends himself via lawyer. So here's what happened. is one beautiful day in October. She's going out and taking her kid to the Lion King. And Ruth sends an email saying that she had the most wonderful time with Kate and Daniel at Susan. So that's the ex-wife and the two children. And this is her response. No secrecy, nothing. Like, literally, she just saw her other grandchildren. All these months, I had been there for Ruth, and I was the one who had gotten Kate and Daniel back into her life after Bernie's arrest, arranging visits with them for her at our home in Greenwich. I was under the impression that Susan wasn't speaking to Ruth. In an instant, that old rivalry flared again, and I lost it. Why? Because they're speaking? Like, what kind of? That's insane. I can't deal with your mother anymore. I snapped at Mark. She plays both sides of the coin. You know what? I can't stand it. I'm writing her a nasty email back. Don't, Mark pleaded. I ignored him and went to my computer. Glad you had a nice dinner with Susan, and thanks for the dagger, I wrote Ruth. I don't understand why that controlling bitch is always in our life, I said of his ex. Mark, you know how helpful I've been with your mother. I found a shrink for her. I helped her look for apartments. My friend offered her free PR advice. I've let her see the kids and had her over for dinner. I mean, at what point was she not allowed to talk to Susan? I just don't understand how his ex-wife is being controlling in this scenario. 
where the grandmother came to visit her grandchildren at the house where she was she supposed to leave the house yeah and I don't think Stephanie understands how weird she looks here she's like they can only see each other under my roof yeah that's, that's controlling so they get into a big argument Mark leaves he storms out he says he's gonna go for a walk he doesn't take the dog and he does not come home that night they, so they call the police and they're freaking out and they have 20 police everywhere looking for him. She calls her parents. They're over. The whole town is being turned over to find this man. And at one point, the detectives are like, do you think he could be with his ex? She goes, you think my husband's at his ex-wife's? I asked incredulously. I'm not calling that bitch. Like, what is wrong with this woman? This entire book is really about how much she hates her husband's ex-wife. He's dead. You've got to move on. The rivalry is over. There's nothing to fight over. Nobody wins. Finally, Mark stumbles back in. He just like lies down in the bed. He doesn't know how he got there. It turns out he had overdosed on pills. He's checked into the hospital and admitted to a psych ward where he stays for, I believe, one week before then they have him in therapy. But it was never really brought up again. Yeah, she says they never spoke about it. The one thing is that his brother went to go visit him and they had been having a very strained relationship. And apparently Mark was like, you need to tell mom that she has to pick me or dad. And so Andy leaves and is like, fuck you. And they get into a huge fight because Andy's like, I'm not here to do your dirty work. Also, it seems that Andy was furious that he had tried to end his own life. Again, I don't want to take Andy's side. I don't think we get a very clear picture of him in this book other than the fact that, like I said, he's introverted and he has a bitch girlfriend and he had cancer at one point. But I do feel like for someone whose family and life is crumbling, it's scary and maybe he acted a little bit carelessly. And Mark is upset because Andy was so mean to him. Andy is upset because Mark hurt himself. And he delivers the message to Ruth. And Ruth doesn't respond to it. Neither of us mentioned what had become obvious. Mark's mother had made her choice. His cry for help had been rebuffed by the one person he did most in that lost, lonely moment when death seemed more inviting than life. Bernie could not be abandoned, but Mark could. What had been perplexing about Ruth's loyalty became quite possibly unforgivable. So they move on with their lives. Mark is healing. She says that things got really good for a little while. We rented a cottage in Montauk for the summer. I felt like a newlywed again. Things are just moving forward. So she talks about how they rented the cottage in Montauk for the summer. And then on the very next page, she goes, best of all that winter, we were starting to reconnect as a couple. My heart soared like a lovesick schoolgirl when Mark suggested we slip away after New Year's for a romantic three-day weekend in the Berkshires. We'd been hunkered down for so long and he'd always panicked or lashed out at me when I suggested little getaways before. I've been too scared of bankruptcy to spend any money and too paranoid about the media to risk being seen enjoying himself. I love that renting a house in Montauk for the summer is not considered lavish. She's like, we can't get away from this house except for to our other house or maybe our third house or maybe the house that we rented this summer. But besides that, no getaways. (laughs) So that year in November for the daughter Aubrey's birthday, Stephanie's mother gets her a trip to Disney World. So the three women go to Disney World together. And Mark seems like he's doing good for the first time. Everybody's back on track. He is working as an office manager at a friend's company. So at least he has somewhere to go every day. He also started a newsletter about real estate, which he thinks is going to be his next big venture. So in December, they go to Disney World. And she's a bit nervous to separate, but things seem very good. So Nick is the son, and he and Mark are staying back in New York. And Audrey, the daughter, Stephanie, and then Stephanie's mother are going to Disney World. So they get there. They're texting back and forth as parents do, being like, oh, look how cute she is here. Oh, look how cute Nick is here. And at one point, Mark texts her and goes, they're suing Audrey for $11,000. The daughter. Yeah. The four-year-old was given a gift of $11,000 at one point, and now she's going to be sued for it. 
So this upsets Stephanie and she's like, why couldn't you just wait till I got back to tell me this? Why'd you have to ruin our vacation? And, you know, things keep moving. They're upset, but they get past that conversation. She just wants to feel normal again. Then a Wall Street Journal article comes out that once again accuses Mark of knowing what his father was up to and he just can't take it. She turns off her phone when she opens her phone. He has been going crazy. He's like, what happened here? How come none of our PR people told me this was coming? He is just going bananas. And she's like, I don't know. I have no idea. And she responds, just saw the article and I cannot take this anymore. You and your legal team and your PR team must do something. I am so fucking pissed. So beyond mad. It's been two fucking years. Enough. Then he calls Marty, rancent Marty. Marty doesn't know what to do. Everybody's just going crazy. Marty's like, this is just another article. They're bored. There's nothing to be afraid of. But he he just doesn't want to keep living with these things popping up. So she goes, I was too sick, tired, and angry to chip away at the rock anymore that evening. I'm turning my phone off, I told Mark. He could reach me through the hotel switchboard if needed. Enjoy, Trevor's good night. At 4.14 on Saturday morning, December 11th, 2010, the second anniversary of his father's arrest, Mark sent three short emails. I found two of them when I woke up and turned my phone on at 6.45. The first one said help in the subject line. Please send someone to take care of Nick. The next one, sent three seconds later, was blank with these words in bold in the subject line. I love you. The doorman won't come check because the doorman is like, it's six o'clock in the morning. I can't go in there. I need approval from the super. So she calls her stepfather to go check. And the stepfather goes into the apartment and finds Mark had killed himself just after four in the morning, right after he sent the emails. They obviously go right back to New York from Florida. I called Bridget, our family babysitter in Greenwich, and told her what had happened. I asked her to pick up Nick at my brother's apartment and bring him to our Greenwich house, where I would meet them at that afternoon. Bridget was close to Susan and had sat for Kate and Daniel when they were little, too. She would tell Mark's ex-wife what had happened. So they fly into New York. She goes straight to Greenwich. The babysitter and the baby are not home. She finds out later that they had been at Susan's, and she is livid that the babysitter went to go tell Susan in person that her ex-husband was no longer alive. Yeah, she sees that as the betrayal from the babysitter. (laughs) I'm like, these are children who lost their father. What is wrong with you? And so she starts getting texts from everybody being like, hi, I just heard the news. I'm so sorry. I hope you're okay. And one of them is from her grad school classmate. She goes, I was surprised. I used only my maiden name at school and had kept my personal travails over the last two years very private. Oh, yeah, she's in grad school at this point. She couldn't believe that anybody from grad school knew who she was, even though she was friends with them for two years. And she's like, I went as far as to when they came over to my house, I turned my mail over. So when they came to your like $10 million house in Soho, you were surprised they Googled you? Okay. And then she has to tell her daughter, which is just heartbreaking. And I don't wish anyone would ever have to do that. I woke up in Greenwich on December 12th, wondering for a few seconds if this was real. If it had really happened, I felt deserted in a combat zone and I couldn't believe he had done this to us. So there is most of all anger at first, which... I feel for her. That is so heartbreaking. She believes that he believed that if he was no longer alive, they would be left alone, which was just not true. Instead, he left her alone to deal with it. They're all in Greenwich and the other family comes over and there was something I needed to say. Whatever distrust and ill will there was between me and Susan all these years seemed pointless now. Susan, I need your help. Please, let's be on the same page. I don't want any more secrets. I don't want anything done behind my back. I can't take any more lies. No more lies. Literally, what are you talking? Who has been lying to you? You just like hated this woman because she had children. And she's like, of course, like we're here for you, whatever you need. And the very next day she gets into a car accident in town and calls Susan and is like, can you come get me? And her and her husband immediately go and get her. Like they were down to mend the hatchet and bond through this horror. And then she gets a call from Ruth and she has no space for Ruth. She had chosen not to be in his life and showing up for his death struck me as unbelievably cold and selfish. Really? 
I'm sorry. A mother who's been estranged from her son because of the actions of her evil criminal mastermind husband, now that her son has passed, has like regrets and that strikes you as cold and selfish? She said, look, you were asked by Mark to stop all contact with Bernie over a year ago. You did not do that. And then the brother is like, well, am I allowed to come to the funeral? And she's like, that's fine, but I don't want that fucking bitch Catherine in my home and neither would Mark. And then Andy doesn't show up at the funeral and she's like, what the fuck? And she was drunk when she said that. And then her brother is like, oh, you called his girlfriend that fucking bitch Catherine. And so then she has to call them and apologize. And she's like, I can't believe they're making me jump through all these apology hoops. All I did was call her a fucking bitch when I was drunk. And then they came and she was really mean about them. The thing she's really mad at Catherine for is that she calls Andy Andrew. Yeah. And that to her is like awful. Everybody's begging her not to cremate Mark to bury him in a Jewish cemetery. She's like, absolutely not. I'll do whatever I want. So she cremates him. Ruth is begging to come and be able to be there for the memorial. And she keeps saying no and calling and saying, you stuck by the man who killed my husband. What kind of mother are you? Why wouldn't you do what you ask? You're a pathetic excuse for a mother. I did not choose Bernie, Ruth insisted. She told me that she planned on telling her sons that week that she was finished with their father, even though she still didn't really see why it mattered. Well, I guess I'm too late. Ruth, your son is dead. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm dead to you too. And Audrey and Nick are too. You will never see your grandchildren again and you will never see me again. They have a very small memorial because they don't want to have a big spectacle, a big funeral. It just doesn't feel right. And then she just keeps digging at his older children. She's like, I made all these hors d'oeuvres and they didn't even eat it. And then they got hungry for pizza. She's like, but I get it. Everyone mourns in different ways. Then a couple weeks later, she finds out that Ruth has been at Susan's and the truce comes crashing down. She cannot believe that Susan is willing to entertain the grandmother of her children. And Susan says, you're doing what you think is right for your kids and I'm doing what I think is right for my kids. The kids need their grandmother. They want her here. She screams at her and is like, I said no more lies and you just lie. I don't know. She's so crazy. She goes, she was playing secret hostess the entire time to the woman she knew I held partly accountable for Mark's death. I assumed Susan hadn't been forthcoming because she had feared I would disinvite her from the memorial service if I knew Ruth was staying with her. I mean, yeah, you disinvited his own mother from the memorial service. I like understand that there was fear that if anyone said the wrong thing to you, they wouldn't be able to pay respects to a person that was a huge part of their lives. She tells some story about how the older son asks to borrow his dad's car to go out one night. And she's like, fine. But she's really painting the son as a taker. Like he just showed up and started wanting all these things of his dad's. Can you believe that? Yeah, I actually can. Yeah, he like wanted clothes. And she's like, he accidentally took the shirt that I'd been sleeping in. It no longer smelled like Mark. There's all this talk about how she doesn't think she can ever go home again because it's too awful there. And then by New Year's Eve, she decides to go back to Soho. Which means that that was all of like a week and a half that she didn't. Yeah. She wanted to cancel Christmas, but she felt like it would be fucked up to do that to her kids. But no one was happy that day. Everyone who was suing Bernie Madoff's son when he was alive kept suing him when he was dead. What Mark and I had been facing together, I now face alone with no job, no income of my own, and two young children to raise. That does suck. That sucks so bad. I like want to feel for her, but she's just so mean to everyone. She pulls some pranks on the press that are staked outside of her house. And she talks about how when this had all started, she wanted to do that. And Mark had been like, don't do it. And she's like, it felt so good to pull pranks on the paparazzi who were staked out. And it's like, I don't know. Maybe he like didn't think of it as a fun prankable moment. Mark's greatest fear beyond being unjustly accused and destroyed both professionally and financially was that I would leave him rather than weather the storm with him. He had never known anything but privilege and he lacked the basic tools to cope with any adversity, much less this monumental one. Takes one to know one. 
Oh my God. And then it turns out that Mark had actually been writing a memoir right before he died. And it was supposed to be about their triumphant love story. And I have to tell you, I can't even read it. It's really bad. It really goes to show how important it is to have a ghostwriter. People are not good writers. So then the story just wraps up with everybody in the family will like pop in and she sees everything as evil. So Andy comes over a few times and she's like, interesting that suddenly you're interested in the kids. And he's like, well, I don't know. My brother died and now I don't want to like lose his children. And she's like, random. Are you maybe watching me? Meanwhile, it's literally a few weeks after his brother had died. And then he goes, well, I have heard you're writing a book. It's February. So he died December 11th and she already thought about writing this book in February and she finished it six months after he died. That is a crazy timeline. She feels upset because Andy is very critical of her writing this book. And she's like, well, how come Catherine, your bitch girlfriend, is allowed to use the Madoff name for press whenever she wants? And he's like, well, we're trying to move away from that. And she's like, we're trying to move away from that. And then I don't even know how to describe what happens. She takes the remains and she divides it into four sections so that Andy can have some, the kids can have some. His older children can have some and she can have some and they can all spread remains separately. Everyone has said, if you're going to spread remains, we want this to be a family memorial. And she's like, I split them so we can all do our own memorial. And everyone says, I don't want a split piece of remains. I want to be there for a family event or I don't want the ashes. And then she's like, well, my kids aren't going to decide what to do with their remains for at least 10 years. And they're like, that's fine. We'll wait 10 years if that's how long it takes. She gets an email from Andy being like, listen, I know we have our troubles, but please just like let me be there for this. Even if it takes 10 years, I'm happy to wait. I just want to be a part of it. And she's reading this email and scattering his ashes over an ocean. She scatters his ashes in like 10 different places. And at every place, somebody sends her an email being like, please just wait for us. His kids are like, please just wait for us. His son came over and wanted some of his fishing rods. And then I was horrified as he left with all of them. What if my son wanted one? And it's like your son is a baby and never fished with his father, which is devastating. But the older son has those memories. Let him take the fucking rods. And then also the son wanted a specific wash that apparently Mark had already had inscribed for Nick. So like the thing he wanted was already taken. She talks about the daughter, Katie, how she's so ashamed of being a Madoff. But Katie, for some reason, is able to swim competitively under the Madoff name and have the Madoff name up on the scoreboard. And I'm like, well, that is her name. And she is biologically related to these people. She's like, how could they even talk about their grandpa? How can they even mention their grandmother's name? And I'm like, well, maybe they loved them more than you did. It's like crazy that you don't understand why a grandchild would have a different connection than you and in-law. So weird. She's like, I hate them and cut them off immediately. Why haven't you? So we finally get to chapter 10, which I believe explains this entire book. It was a pitch to get on Real Housewives. It opens with one of the funnier things I've ever read. Nobody knows who I am, but I still hide it for staking out my favorite bike in the back now. She goes to SoulCycle and she loves it. Losing weight isn't my goal. I've had no appetite since Mark's death and the stress has caused me to lose more than 20 pounds already. It's the strength that I need. <laughs> Losing weight is not my goal. I'm actually skinny enough. <laughs> my husband's suicide has really helped me trim down. Sometimes one of the real housewives of New York City shows up for a class two and we exchange pleasantries. God, she really wants to be on that show. So she talks about how her life is now. She like won't leave New York even though life would probably be a lot easier for them if they moved a little bit outside the city. She just kind of has to live with the assumptions from people around her. I'm already sensitive to the well-intentioned assumptions when a caregiver oversympathizes with Nick's separation anxiety, telling me, of course, he's had a hard time lately. I bristle. Many other two-year-olds are clingy too. Like, why can't you accept that maybe your son needs extra care because he's been through trauma? She's like, kids don't feel stuff like that. They don't feel feelings. 
She's trying to make keepsakes of their father so they can remember him forever. She lists all of his favorite things and his favorite movie was The Hangover. And I was like, don't tell them that. She talks about how hard it is for her to make mom friends. She doesn't want to go to a grief class because one other time she tried to make mom friends. All they cared about was home renovations. She goes, they spent their hour bitching with their husbands and their renovations. I never opened my mouth. My husband was my best friend and I liked my kitchen appliances and master bath fixtures just fine. Maybe you liked them because you had already renovated. Like when they moved into their Soho apartment, they took down all the walls and redid it completely. So don't act like you're some humble, chill girl. You're just richer than most. Yeah. And then it just kind of wraps up. She says the purpose of this book was, should the Real Housewives not work out? She doesn't say that. She says that the purpose of this book was to set the record straight. I guess people, I don't feel like we're asking her. This is a story that was deeply interesting to people. I do think what's interesting is the way that she was adjacent to one of the biggest Ponzi schemes, financial spectacles of the last couple decades. And she does not have a single insight into what happened or how it went. It's mostly about Susan, about how much she hates her husband's ex-wife. And it's like a storytelling on her shitty personality. The really interesting parts of this book are the little lines like, I already lost the weight. I don't care about renovations. I went to Nightingale Bamford. My dad's boat. I mean, it is interesting as a fun, light read to read a truly narcissistic Upper East Side bitch. (laughs) Yeah, the way that the villains of this story are Ruth and Susan, you're just like, okay. The way that she tells on herself is she's like, I liked Ruth when I thought no one else liked her. But then when I found out she had a second friend, as soon as I found out Ruth had somewhere to go, I was so fucking sick of it. The most recent checkup on this family that I found was in 2017. And at that time, Ruth was still living in Susan's house because Susan had a sense of family and Stephanie was like, I don't understand. What do you, you want me to talk to your kids? You had kids before you met me and now I'm supposed to what? Buy them a birthday present? Go to their bar mitzvah? Shut the fuck up. (laughs) You controlling bitch. At the small funeral they did, his older son got up and just said, the one thing I want is for us to all get along. And then to put out this book where you like shit on him and shit on their mother. I don't know how you could in good conscience do this. And she's really setting her kids up for a life of having no family on that side, which I guess is what she wants. It's a wild book. I guess she really did think she was marrying into billions of dollars and she got – She feels so – Ripped off. Ri- I guess she was scammed just like the rest of us. Not I mean, not me. I, mean us. Not me. I didn't have money with him. But <laughs> I literally didn't start investing until I got Sims' book from Girls That Invest. <laughs> anyway, you guys, we love you so much. On the Patreon this week is whatever we feel like. We'll let you know. We love you with our whole hearts. Yeah. Have the best day. Have the best day. Who do we love the most? Thank you to FlowerChild98. Nothing but peace and love from me to you. Thank you, cool crew. You are the coolest crew I've ever seen. Thanks to Sunshine Listener 15. I appreciate your bright, shiny listening. Thank you to Pastor Chow. I hope you chow down on some great dinner tonight. Thank you to Crazy Cat Lady Amy. You are not crazy to me. Thank you to Snuggler123456678. I hope someone cuddles you really good tonight. Thanks to Brie Brie. The Brie, so nice. They named her twice. Thanks, Maya VD11. I've uh, got my Aya on Maya's great review. Thank you. I don't know if that made sense. Thank you to Posh Amanda. I appreciate your extra poshness. Thank you to Princess KGB. Wow, congratulations on being the princess of the KGB. I'm happy you're on our side. Thank you to Mervera typing randomly. I'm happy that you randomly typed such a beautiful review. Thank you to SleepyFish415. I hope you get a good night's rest. Thank you to Papa Mappa. You are my favorite papa. 
Thank you to Nasili2323. You know I fucking love someone silly. Thank you to Bingo Goobleman. Bingo was his name o and I love you for it. Thank you to Sarah12689. You are, you might be the 112689th Sarah, but you're number one in my heart. Thank you to Ali Sean, the best Sean in the nation. Thank you to Likely Petrus. I appreciate your Petrusness. I am petrified of such a great review. Thank you to Alyssa Willie. I'm glad you enjoy a listening to us. Thank you to Matea Chalada. A beautiful review with extra sauce. Thank you to Makings of Mine. Well, you made me a beautiful review, and I appreciate you for it. Thank you to L-T-H-L-T-Y-T-Y to you. That means thank you. K.K. Collins. This review was even better than OK, OK. Sawfire 12. This review was, in fact, fire. Ross Leggett. I have never gotten a better review. Gotten. You get it. Thank you to Loose Cannon 911. I appreciate you firing right into our reviews and giving us these beautiful five stars. And thank you to Lucy Abdel. Even more beautiful than the Wisconsin Dells. Pink Pop Mash. There is nothing I love more than Pink Pop Mash, except maybe this beautiful review. Thank you, Miranda the Curly. I admire your curly, curly locks. And thank you to Mandatory22. The only thing that I think is mandatory is me letting you know that I appreciate you endlessly. Thank you guys so much. I love you.